Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And happy Thanksgiving to all the amazing Talk is Jericho fans in America. And here's something to be thankful for. Talk is Jericho's streak of rock and roll Hall of Fame guests continues today with the original bass player of the forefathers of the whole punk scene, the Sex Pistols. Glenn Matlock is here. Everybody's heard about the controversial pioneers, the Sex Pistols. Glenn's here. He's talking about the early days, how they met manager Malcolm McLaren and got started as a band. Glenn's talking about the early punk scene in Britain in the 70s, what he thinks about the Sex Pistols' role and all that, how they viewed what the Ramones were doing over in New York at the same time. Glenn's also talking about his departure from the band, how they found Sid Vicious, the infamous Sid Vicious, who did not play on the Sex Pistols' only record, and of course, what led to the Pistols' first reunion in 1996. Could it ever happen again? He will weigh in on the question. It is live from London in a little suburb of London, in a little coffee shop in the basement. I was there with Glenn Matlock, another great great rock and roll conversation. Plus, I'm going to tell you all about uh, my Survivor Series weekend, and I'm going to tell you what I did on Monday after Survivor Series weekend. I'm going to tell you what I did. I did DDP yoga, and it felt great. I was definitely sore after that five-on-five elimination match against Team SmackDown and what a match it was. It went 52 minutes, which was crazy. And anytime you have a match with 10 guys, uh, it's like lemmings running around. You know, everybody's kind of got ideas and everybody's going back and forth. And it's hard to kind of take control. I'm used to, to taking control uh, with the matches that I do, kind of putting them all together and that sort of thing. But in this match, I mean, you can only basically control the stuff that you're doing. Um, and it was a long weekend for me, too, because I had arranged to do... Uh, to go to the Striper concert, the, the Striper to Hell with the Devil 30th anniversary show at the Stone Pony in New Jersey, which I talked about last week when I had Oz Fox from Striper on there, with the Christian Metal Club, with uh, Richard Christie from the Howard Stern Show, Howard Jones from The Devil You Know, X Kill Switch Engaged. We have our little uh, Christian Metal uh, group text, and we've been talking about going to the Striper show for, for months and months. We're super excited about it. Uh, very, very um, into the whole Christian Metal scene of the 80s. So we wanted to get together, do a podcast, Podcast and then go see Striper together, and that's what we did. Uh, the, the Christian Metal Meltdown, we called it. It was a, a very cool conversation about three huge fans of a very specific genre of, of heavy metal music, but it was very popular in the 80s, and of course, Striper was the biggest of all of them. So, um, 
then I got a call from Hockey Night in Canada who wanted to do uh, wanted me to do the intro for Hockey Night in Canada, which if you're not from Canada, in, in, it's the equivalent of being like on the intro for Monday Night Football in the States. And they wanted to do kind of a parallel between my dad and myself, um, you know, a tough prairie uh, hockey player begat a tough prairie pro wrestler and kind of put in highlights of his stuff and highlights of my stuff so that was another thing i couldn't turn down so i flew from tampa to toronto on friday went to the studios in hockey night in canada laid down uh kind of the voice tracks and then we did some shooting on a, on a black screen with blue lights and it was really really cool stuff and then um they were able to make the piece out of that so i went to toronto filmed that stuff then the next morning got up flew back to new york and of course you have to go through customs so that's a whole that's a whole rigmarole then uh got to um uh, LaGuardia it was the only place that I could fly in and out of for the time frames that I needed. what I did not know is LaGuardia is about 75 miles from the Stone Pony in Asbury Park so it was about a three-hour trip to get down to the to the Stone Pony I met up met up with Richard uh, and uh and Howard at a hotel near the Stone Pony we knocked out the Christian Metal Meltdown podcast which you'll hear in the future then we drove over to the, the to uh, the Stone Pony we had some dinner we went and saw Striper it was a great great time to hell with the devil in its entirety and then about 10 other great songs place was packed sold out sold out show sold out tour uh, Richard Christie's probably the biggest Striper fan in the world He's like an idiot savant of Striper. Remember that? April 3rd, 1998 is when the the uh, In God We Trust single came out. So then uh, he was crying during the show and we're laughing and high-fiving, just having the best time. And then afterwards we went back and hung out with the guys in Striper. Obviously, Michael Sweet, Talk is Jericho alumni. Oz Fox, Talk is Jericho alumni. Tim Gaines, uh, Robert Sweet. Great guys. Had a great uh, great conversation, a great hang. Took some cool pictures with the Christian Metal Club and Striper. And then uh, Richard and I drove back to LaGuardia, which once again, 75 miles. I fell asleep. I had to pull over on the side of the road and fell asleep. And Richard finally woke me up. And I go, how long have I been sleeping on the side of the road? He said, about 15 minutes minutes and i was like why didn't you wake me up early he said well you look like you need some sleep so i just messed around on my phone for a bit so i took richard back to his house then went to my hotel in laguardia i got in at 2 30 in the morning i went to sleep at 2 45 i got up at 4 15 to go back to the airport to catch my 6 15 flight back to toronto back through customs straight over to the bassett theater i got there at about 8 30 slept on the floor for half an hour and got ready for the live talk is jericho with kevin owens a huge turnout i think we had about 800 people there which was awesome great conversation probably the best one i've had i know kevin's been on talk is jericho a few times but uh, this was the best one i can't wait for you guys to hear that great great uh, crowd great q a's big long meet and greet we had the vip brunch beforehand if you, if you ever get a chance to come see a live talk is jericho uh, through markoutmoments.com please come see it because they've both been huge successes the first one with christian second one with kevin owens i'm sure we'll try and do one maybe for the royal rumble so then go straight over from there we finished that at two straight over to the venue to start putting together the match for the 10-man elimination and then here we go so uh sat there for hours and finally about five minutes before we're supposed to go out we're getting ready we go out there and end up uh, doing a 52-minute match. I was probably in it for about, I don't know, 30 minutes or so. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those days where everything kind of locks in together. The I go to lock up with Shane McMahon, and the first punch is in the face, and then here we go, off and running. So it was uh, it was a, a wild wind, Mr. Toad's wild ride. Uh, it worked out really good. I thought Survivor Series was great. I love the Goldberg finish. I think it was very smart. Had they gone out there for about a 10-minute you know, match and kind of been a little bit plotting, or maybe somebody blows up, or whatever it may be, um, I don't think it would have been as effective. It was a shock value, water cooler moment. Everybody's talking about it. it sets up for a huge main event re, uh, rematch. 
and we have something to talk about. So I thought it was a great idea. Everyone was shocked. Everyone was surprised. But after thinking about it for about a minute, I realized it was actually a pretty brilliant finish. So congratulations to those guys. Congratulations to Goldberg for coming back and uh, and, and, and uh, making his mark right away. Uh, great show once again on Monday night. I did a great podcast on Monday afternoon with one of the biggest stars in, in movies and TV. Uh, maybe not the biggest right now, but I think overall longevity he's up there. So I'm going to reveal that in a couple weeks. And then we did a great show for Raw which, of course, culminated in the uh, breakup of Owens and Jericho. But it wasn't Sykes. Swerve, we got you all of you. Did you really think we are going to break up? Come on, guys. We're best friends. But uh, that was perfectly orchestrated just the way we wanted it to be. And then a great finish to the Owens-Rollins match with the Sin Cara mask, which was a F you to the internet community that knows everything but doesn't know shit. Uh, Sin Cara is a great guy. He's a good friend of mine. And uh, he actually lent me that mask. So thanks to Sin Cara for lending me his mask so I could go and pull the swerve and attack. Seth Rollins and then pull the mask off and be revealed as me as Chris Jericho which is an offshoot of an angle that I did with Rey Mysterio Jr. Uh, a few years ago actually just Rey Mysterio in the WWE so anyways it's been a great weekend getting ready for Thanksgiving uh, and I'm a little bit sore from having these long matches and from getting pedigreed on the ground but as you know I've been pretty much invincible over the last few years and one of the biggest reasons for that is because of DDP yoga I've been doing DDPY for about five years now and I keep just getting better and better uh, the way that I feel even all of these these traveling where you're getting an hour and a half sleep in the hotel then an hour of sleep on a plane then half an hour of sleep on the floor of the Bassett Theater dressing room I'm still not sore after my matches I'm still not sore in the morning because DDPY has been uh, has been helping me for years, and hopefully it's been helping all of you. And if it hasn't been helping all of you, now's your chance. Because what? Guess what? This week is Black Friday week, but here on DDPY, the Black Friday sale starts today. Okay, there is no Black Friday. It's Black Wednesday, Black Thursday, Black Friday, Black Saturday, Black Sunday. It's Black Week here at DDPY. Once again, every day this week is Friday, even Saturday and Sunday, because the DDPY Black Friday sale starts today. Okay, this is DDPY's biggest sale ever, and it starts today. How big is it, Chris? I'll tell you how big it is. Everything is 5, 10, 15, 20, 25% off. 25% off everything, and I mean everything, all right? Everything. You're talking about all the DDP Yoga swag. We're talking about the DDP Yoga Now app. We're talking about the DVDs. Everything is 25% off. You're not going to find that deal anywhere else, and you're not going to get that anywhere but from here, from listening to Talk is Jericho. All you Sexy Beast Talk is Jericho listeners get 25% off everything available at ddpyoga.com. If you get the DDPY DVDs, you get three months free of the DDP Yoga Now app, one of the greatest apps I've ever seen. I use it quite often. Uh, I'm still uh, weaning myself off the DVDs, but now I just pop on my phone, put on the DDP Yoga Now app, and I do my yoga programs. Everything is up there. Everything is on there. Uh, diet programs, uh, menus, uh, live workouts, everything, okay? But if you just want the DVDs, or if you just want the app, the digital form of the DDP Yoga Now app is also, guess what? 25% off. And if that's not enough, we got 25% off on all DDPY swag, t-shirts, 
shirts. Check. Hats, how you doing? Mats, how you doing? Heart monitors, how you doing? Hats, how you doing? Autographs, how you doing? You name it. It's all 25% off. One quarter off. All right? I'll tell you something else. If you've been on the fence of starting DDPY, this is the best time to get on board. Like I said, this program changed my life mentally, physically. It extended my career in the WWE by a decade at least. It extended my Fozzie career. I couldn't even get out of the bunk in the morning. I was in so much pain. Singing high notes was ripping me apart. All gone because of DDPY. Okay? And remember, if you get the DDPY DVDs, you get three months free of our DDP Yoga Now app. And if you want only digital, the DDP Yoga Now app, also 25% off. And remember, we got 25% off on uh, all the swag and all the stuff. 25% off. Okay? I've got to tell you right now, you go, go to ddpyoga.com and check out DDP's Black Friday promo video. It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, we're getting uh, right from here into Christmas. DDP is a Christmas fanatic. He talks about that. This guy has Christmas parties. This guy has Santa come over. This guy thinks he's Santa. DDP is so crazy, he thinks he's Santa Claus, and he's giving all you 25% off all your orders, okay? Remember, we've been talking about DDP yoga all year and how Diamond Dallas Page has changed the lives of so many people from disabled veteran Arthur Borman to Jake the Snake Roberts, Scott Hall, Mick Foley. Have you seen Mick Foley? I mean, the guy's, the guy's, the guy's, the guy's uh, skinny now. You've never heard Mick Foley being skinny. He is skinny. Rich Ward, Corey Taylor, Gary Holt, musicians, wrestlers, everybody, and now it's all up to you to take control of your life, take control of your fitness. If you're thinking about taking control, this is your chance. It's the biggest sale ever going on right now, okay? Remember, like I said, I, I'll tell you, I don't know how crazy DDP is. You don't know how crazy DDP is about the holidays. He loves uh, Santa Claus. He's got a holiday train going through his house. He's got uh, stuff everywhere, Christmas stuff. He's got portraits of Santa Claus, probably over 100 Santa Claus figures. So his he thinks he's Santa Claus. He's crazy. So this year he decided to not only make it the biggest DDP yoga sale he's ever offered, but he's created one of the craziest Black Friday videos I've ever seen. And let's just say somehow he's convinced Jake the Snake Roberts to get hoisted up in the air in front of a giant green, scene, the green screen, the crotchety uh, Jake the Snake Roberts. You can check all of that out at ddpyoga.com. Uh, all the Sexy Beast listeners of Talk is Jericho right here. All you gotta do is go to ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. That's all you gotta do to take advantage of this great deal. ddpyoga.com slash Jericho and get 25% off the DDP Yoga program uh, plus three months of full access to the DDP Yoga Now app. That's ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. 25% off Black Friday week, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Go check it out now, ddpyoga.com slash Jericho. Get in the best physical and mental shape of your life and do it today. Talk is Jericho. All right, so we're at the uh, the Toast Cafe, which is uh, Glenn Matlock's. It's like, is this like your local? Like your local, like yeah, your local yeah, pub? Yeah, this is my local. This area is called Little Venice. There's a canal. It goes Two over. canals, mate. You can go... If you got a boat, you can go all the way up to the north of England, and if you turn left where the canals meet, it takes you down to the Pool of London, where all the boats used to pull up and unload and stuff. I saw that little canal. So does that lead to the Thames, or what does that lead to? It does eventually. It okay. That way, and it goes through Regent's Park. That's the Regent's Canal, and then it goes through Camden, and then through the East End of London. But the other way, it goes up to Birmingham and. Manchester and stuff. So Beautiful way, little like area, right? Weeks. Yeah, it's nice. Because London hasn't always been like this. I mean, I've been coming to London for only 15 years I've or had so. the canal a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but was London kind of seedier 20, 30, 40, 50, 40 years ago yeah, like in the 70s? I mean, I, I, yeah. And 
it's sort of maybe in the early, late 50s, early 60s, you know, when I was a real little kid growing up, everywhere was filthy. And really? Well, there were still bomb sites everywhere from the Second World War. Oh, yeah. You know, and houses hadn't been painted and... 1963 we used to get real big smogs you know like fog and smoke mixed together and when I was a kid I remember walking down the street and I was only little and I couldn't see my hand in front of my face right and they were quite right lots of people died you know people with emphysema and things like that older people and um, they brought in the clean air act and they stopped people having coal in their houses but until then everything was like covered in soot you know, and then people start attacking a bit more. See, pride. people forget about that. That you just mentioned, I forgot that it actually got bombed. Like the Germans bombed yeah. London. Yeah, look, right around here, there's lots of new buildings. In fact, just around the corner, there's a some quite nice old sort of Victorian, maybe even Nash style houses, and there's a big, totally different houses there. And it was where the first, I think, the first V1 landed. Oh, really? It took out about four houses. Really? Yeah. And, so, and raised around here is because when they're Paddington Station, they used to bomb, you know, all the industry things. And that wasn't precision bombing. I mean, Paddington Station, walking distance, but yeah, it's still a little bit of a way. In fact, a mate of mine did some touring in Germany years ago, and he said, oh, you know, where are you, where are you from? And he said, um, I, I sort of live in Maid of Elves, near Paddington. And he said, ah, oh, Paddington, I know. He said, oh, you've been there? He said, well, not really. He was an older guy. And he said, well, how do you know Paddington? And he said, aeroplane in the creek, Bumsy. <laughs> so <laughs> It's kind of funny, but it won't be funny if he was underneath it. Well, see, that, that's a pure Londoner to, to experience that. Yeah, yeah. But if you're talking about, like, how long did it take to start getting nice again? Like, in the 70s, what was London like? Um, it all depends how much money you had, really. And where you lived. You know, there's <laughs> As always, always been pockets of really nice houses and... And there's always been the other stuff, but yeah, I think after, after the they cleaned up the air thing, it started to generally get, get a better, little bit better. better. But you know, if you're talking about when the punk thing came through, it was um, it wasn't so much the houses; it was just the atmosphere of what was going on and what wasn't going on, and there was quite an air of for people of our age group of desperation and the governments were useless even more useless than they are <laughs> and it, it just seemed like there was no future for anybody unless you did something about it yourselves which is what we embarked upon doing as the Sex Pistols well and then you say that being one of the founding members of the Sex Pistols it's great because you show up here today completely on time actually early nice sports coat on you look like a like a you have like a classy gentleman today you never know what to expect. Sunday <laughs> you think like what is he, is he going to show up with a leather jacket with safety right. pins in it you know <laughs> it was never 100% my style you know I've always been a bit more moddy you know, right. the whole, and, and the other thing as well is if, you know, I tend to get recognised quite a lot mm-hmm. and, and I don't always want it, you know, there's right. a time and a place for things. If I walk around dressed like a punk, you know, <laughs> ten times more people come up to me and I just want to sail through life doing what I want to do. Not Well, it, it would be kind of strange to dressing like a punk, you know, in this day and age in 2016. Some people still do. That, that were in that scene in the 70s, though? Yeah, they're not necessarily... I don't think you'll find any of the Sex Pistols looking up. Well, John, maybe. <laughs> yeah, Steve he might still, right. He, he never changed. Yeah. So people recognise you quite a bit? Quite a bit, yeah. You know, 
Because it all depends where you go. If I go to a gig, yes. Yeah, of course, right. You know, if, if I go to the bank, <laughs> yeah. Um, horses for courses, really. But but that's the thing with the Sex Pistols being such a legendary band. I mean, in a lot of ways. The first punk band? One of the first punk bands? Well, I think the first British punk band, I mean, there's a debate over who was the first. You know, was it the Sex Pistols or was it the Ramones? Right. But I think what happened was, was that both bands kind of got fed up with what was going on. You know, like the progressive rock things, which was big at the time, and sort of light jazz funk and... I don't know, I quite like the Philadelphia sound, so I did, did you know, mm-hmm. do the hustle and all that. But that was all going <laughs> on around about that time. But I think the the bands got fed up with those kind of things, both sides of the Atlantic at the same time. When the Ramones came to England, I'd heard of the Ramones because we was quite hip. You know, we was involved with this guy, Malcolm McLaren, who was right. our manager, and he'd been going backwards and forwards to the States. And he told us about what was going on. But we was already kind of up and running as a band. We hadn't done a lot. Mm -hmm. But none of the bands had made any recordings at the time. So we'd never heard each other. And when the Ramones first came to England, I saw them at Dingwalls. I was quite shocked how close on the same page they were as us. Very similar. Yeah. But, you know, I knew the guys from the Ramones. I kind of made it with Marky Ramone. I know he wasn't the original guy. I did his radio show on Sirius Radio. You know, and somebody called in and said, what's your favourite song? And then while the record was playing, he said, Glenn, I can't tell him that I like the Shirelles, you know. <laughs> well, that's what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. You have this, this image as a, as a, as a punk rocker. Yeah. Everything has to be anarchist and, and you can't like anything else, but that's yeah. not the case. Yeah, it's like we've got Catholic tastes. <laughs> did you guys ever tour with the Ramones? Was there ever a Sex Pistols Ramones? Not with the Pistols, but I, I actually did a tour at a band a few years after the Pistols called the Spectres, and I did mm-hmm. a tour. We opened up for Ramones around England it was funny actually before they played they would go out and have a big curry every night a big curry? yeah like a big blowout curry and then come on stage and do their hour but that's hard though I had curry once work, before I went on stage I almost threw up yeah well, <laughs> they liked it and they would have a lot of it <laughs> but the Ramones had that, that appeal of just uh, like you just mentioned like one two three four and they would start go yeah. one two three four one two yeah. three four that was yeah. the beauty of them yeah but they was the faster aspect of Punk. I mean, sometimes when I do things, people go, oh, it's not punk, you know, it's not fast enough. But if you listen to the Pistol stuff, it's not that fast. Mm-hmm. There's only about one or two really fast songs, and all the rest are kind of medium-paced, and there's a whole bunch of influences in the Pistols things, you know. Like like what? Because punk is more of an attitude than a speed thing, I, th- I think. Yeah, be. you know, and I think, you know, I always liken it to if you go, if you're an actor... You know, and you go on stage, you don't kind of gabble your lines really quickly like that. You know, you take your time and you right. deliver it, you know, with a plumb. And I think that's what it was, all, it was all about for us. Anarchy in the UK is bam, 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 bam. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's got a, a, yeah, it's a speed, it's got an assertiveness to it. Um, it's more of a groove yeah. than the speed. Yeah, definitely. Which is always the, the, the sign of good music. I think so. So, you know, we weren't trying to be punk. We were just trying to be the Sex Pistols. Steve, Paul and I like bands like The Faces. They were one of the few bands just before us that Mm -hmm. we considered cool, basically, because they seemed like they had a laugh about everything all the time, always, and and didn't really 
get to it's such a great party groups. vibe too like they just always seem that they were half buzzed on something you know yeah, the faces I, man they probably were <laughs> yeah you know but then you listen to one of their later songs like Boston Boys mm-hmm. I mean even the title it's almost a punk song but they dug The Temptations and Bobby Womack and the blues and I kind of got into that through them this is while I was learning to play um, so that's kind of been there and Paul liked reggae didn't really exist any like sort of blue beat and scar um, uh, Steve liked the New York Dolls I kind of liked them a bit I liked Captain Beefheart and some of the crowd rock bands like Can which John liked but he liked bands like Van de Graaff Generator and he hated the faces hmm. and it's all kind of in the mix there somewhere and those Sort of thrown in there together because yeah. that's the thing like you and Steven yeah and afterwards punk bands came along wanted to be punk like Pistols and they just oh like I'm a punk oh you look like a punk uh, we need another punk to come and join our punk band and I think it became very kind of narrow mm-hmm. you know. well, well, and you mentioned too like you guys were all players you could play well a bit you know but the, but the whole vibe of punk at moving forward was that you couldn't really play. The Sex Pistols being one of the... Yeah, but you got to remember, we was a good year before any of the other punk bands came through over here. Mm-hmm. We was a year before The Clash. Right. Right. You know, I remember meeting Mick Jones for the first time, and he came down to our Sex Pistols rehearsal place in Denmark Street, which has just been saved for the posterity of the name. Really? Yeah. It was in this great... It's been grade two listed... In Denmark Street, it's like our Tin Pan Alley where all the guitar stores are. Um, but he came down with some other people to have a meeting with Malcolm McLaren with Bernard Rhodes, who was his manager. And Mick had hair down his back and a girl's blouse on. And they weren't flared, I'll give him that, but high, <laughs> um, stack heel shoes and yeah, yeah, yeah. tight tiger print trousers <laughs> and then he sort of saw the light you know <laughs> right 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 but that's but we, we never looked like that you know Stephen Paul I mean Paul was a bit of a skinhead you know football and mm-hmm. I was a bit kind of muddy John was different but. the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So how did the whole punk scene really begin? Because you're talking about Britain in the early 70s. You mentioned more. Oh, hang on. I'm not that old. Mid-70s. Mid-70s. Well, no, we kind of got going maybe early 75. But what I'm saying at the time, in that 70s time frame, was glam and Bowie and the well, sweet and well, slate yes, and that sort yes of thing. Yes and no, because that over here, that had kind of been and gone. Oh, okay. We liked those things, but, you know, we was hip to that. I mean, Bowie was maybe... 72, 73, right. I can't remember exactly. Oh, so it already it kind of moved on from that. It kind of moved on, and what happens in England a little bit is when bands have any degree of success, they get taken into the States to go and tour. Mm-hmm. You know, so they're not around. You know, They're not playing little clubs that are accessible. Maybe they might play Wembley Arena once For a year, sure, but right. then it's a high price ticket, and if you're a kid, you ain't got much money, it's hard to go. One of the things I did go and see, though, at quite an early age, because I like the faces, I went to see them at Wembley. 
maybe 1973, and I didn't know who the support band was, but it was the New York Dolls. Hmm. And it was the original New York Dolls with Billy Dole, the original drummer, maybe about a week or two before he died. Hmm. So that was quite a sort of a connection kind right. of thing. And, and again, I was a little bit too young, but Iggy had played at the Scala Cinema. It was quite a famous gig. And they recorded Raw Power in England. Did they really? Yeah. I didn't and know. In fact, there's, it's funny, there's, down the road there's a shop, there's a street called Edgware Road, and it's not so much now, but you always used to have lots of electronic shops in it, you know, selling capacitors and yeah, yeah, yeah. rear stats and things like that. And I, I played with Vegan. I was talking to him. I really like Raw Power. You know, where'd you get the idea for the ly- lyrics from? You know, look out, honey, I'm using technology. He said, well, I was walking down the Edgware Road looking in the shop. I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny how all these things are right, sort right, of right. In, Where you get your inspiration from, yeah. right? Yeah. So if that was going on, so what, what kind of begat the punk scene then? Well, um, we Sex Pistols did over here. We all hung out, and I actually worked at Malcolm McLaren's shop. He had this wacky shop down the King's Road, which was the antithesis of what was going on in London at the time. You know, when everybody was wearing flares and had long hair and and tulip lapels. Did you have them in the States on your jacket? <laughs> yeah, and, sure. Yeah, and, and Powder penny, blue colour. Yeah, and penny round collars. <laughs> yeah. Malcolm had a teddy boy shop. You know, I don't know if you know what teddy boys are. Yeah, I mean, leather, you know, kind but, of 50s rockabilly. Yeah, but more kind of like a tailored look, you know, okay. with, with like drape coats. Wasn't that like the early Beatles when they were like... Was no, the, no, no, no. Wasn't their gimmick kind of teddy boys though? Like no, no they were, in Hamburg, they were kind of leather sort of rockers kind of thing. Okay, so teddy that's boys. not a teddy boy. Okay, um, American Graffiti. Mm-hmm. There's, who's the guy who did Nut Rocker? Who the, did what? Nut Rocker. Da, 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 oh. <laughs> and managed the Runaways. Uh, um, Kim, Kim Fowler. Fowler. He, he's in American Graffiti and he's dressed as a teddy boy. Ah, okay. Uh, he's involved with that bit, you know where they put a chain underneath the police car? Right? yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, that's I mean, him. Okay. For years, but it's like a long coat, you know, with cavalry cuffs and. So you, it's a tailored. You're, you're try, you have to try to be a teddy boy. Yeah. Yeah, which comes from the Edwardian look, Teddy Ed, Edward ah. Teddy, and that's what the aristocracy used to wear in like the thirties. Okay, that makes and sense. Working class kids took it up. So anyway, he was involved in that, and we gravitated. It was the only place doing it in London, and it attracted every weirdo and oddball in London on the Saturday afternoon, <laughs> and we met loads of people through that. When we started playing, kids who came into the shop would come and see us. Hmm. And it, but the kids who came in would be Susie from the Banshees, and the people who ended up in her band, Sid Vicious, Billy Idol. Wow. That was all part of the... Of the scene. The scene, and it? It just started a bit of a snowball thing. So Malcolm was the, was the manager of the Sex Pistols as well. Yeah. Did he kind of help assemble the band? Or did you guys already exist at that point? Steve and Paul had a band and I, I was working at Malcolm's and they came in one day and they was always trying to get Malcolm involved and he kind of humoured them a little bit, you know, oh, is it going, boys? You know, we've been rehearsing Paul. I overheard Paul saying, he said, yeah, but our bass player never turns up. You know, we're trying to take it seriously and, and, and the bass player was Paul's sister's fiancée, Del. Right? <laughs> And I over and I said, well, I'm play- I play bass, and I you do. You know, what bands do you like? I said, Faces. Man, well, that's our favourite band. Anyway, I went and had a play with them, and that was it. And we started rehearsing. Steve was the singer originally. Oh, really? It yeah. was a trio. 
No, no, and there was another guitarist, a guy called Wally Nightingale. We weren't even called the Sex Pistols then. Gotcha. And then round, and, and Steve was a complete rogue. And about that time, I went to see Ronnie Wood play. It wasn't the Faces. He did a, a gig with, um, he'd, he'd done that album, I Can Feel the Fire or something. So the solo record? Or yeah, yeah, solo record. And he yeah. played this gig up in Kilburn, the Gaumont State Kilburn, I think it was called. And I went, I just had a cheap ticket with my girlfriend and we wasn't what, sure what level it was on. We went up a bit too far and it was all dark. And all that, and I thought, oh no, this ain't it. And there was a bit of a kerfuffle. And all of a sudden, Steve and Paul, I'd only met about a week before, had come down and they'd snuck in across the roof and I was all covered in dirt and shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh, these blokes are interesting. <laughs> so you guys started jamming with the four of you. How did it end up where, where Johnny Lydon, well, Johnny Rock? Well, kind of left. He weren't quite the right guy. Steve was learning the guitar and started getting better on it. And we decided, he moved to guitar, and we realised Steve wasn't really the singer. He, he was a bit like Steve Ellis or Tom Jones. <laughs> you know Steve Ellis from The Love Affair? Well, I know Tom Jones for sure. Right. I'm sure it's the same it's vibe, kind right? of a bit, you know. Not unusual. Yeah. Like a lounge singer. Yeah. Well, actually, Tom Jones is a good singer. I mean, he's really good. He's a great it. singer. And he's more than a lounge singer. You know, but if you're good. saying that's the vibe that yeah, he had. Yeah, kind of. You yeah. Know, yeah. But, but back then, one of the names that I was knocking around was the Swankers. And if you see Steve, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, what have you been listening to? Oh, Swank, you know, to this day. Swank, Swank, well, kind of Roy Orbison, you know, Tom. You know. That's a great name, by the way, the yeah. Swankers. Yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, we was on the lookout for a singer and through Malcolm's shop, people would look out for... And we, we came by John, you know, he's one of the people who came in the store. Was he a singer, like, by trade? No, he weren't. <laughs> he didn't know what he was. But Malcolm had told us about this guy in New York that he'd met and was kind of cool. Um, and we actually was thinking, before we got John, of maybe trying to invite him over from America to join us and there was a little bit of correspondence going on but it was never going to work out because you know he didn't have any money we didn't have any money you can fly somebody over from the states just right. on spec but it was Richard Hell oh really yeah wow and when we met John he looked like Richard Hell <laughs> but he could never have heard of Richard Hell mm -hmm. and I think to this day Richard Hell thinks Rotten nicked his look but he just didn't it was just total courage because Richard Hell is a real kind of a pioneering punk guy as well well for me I mean what although we didn't hear any music Malcolm brought back some flyers you know for gigs and there was a list of songs that that he actually pinned on the wall in the shop he used to have like a weird kind of eclectic clipboard you know, postcards that people mm -hmm. sent him and they all read Malcolm knew some odd people and you know you'd read these things there was a guy called Fred Vermorrell who he, Malcolm had known from the 60s I think from art school and it, one of the things was Malcolm I'm disappointed with you do the, do the doors of art school open onto the King's Road I think not you know and I'd never been involved with people writing <laughs> things like that it was kind of weird but one of the things he put on the wall was this list of songs, which looking back must have been a set list. Mm -hmm. And one of the songs was open brackets in the arms of close brackets Venus de Milo. Right now, I was at art college by then, and I thought, well, that's weird. 
the statue of Venus de Milo has got no arms, they've fallen off. You know? <laughs> yeah. And the other one was blank generation. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a weird idea. And it kind of got me thinking. That's where I got the idea for Pretty Vacant from. From that? From the set list on the wall? Yeah. Really? It doesn't say Pretty Vacant on anything, but that, you know, in hand with what was going on in London, this, we was having a laugh and stuff. It, it, it was loads of other shit going on. Yeah, everybody was on strike. There was power cuts. The miners were on strike, so there wasn't enough coal for the, hmm. f- for, for the power stations. You know, in 76, the people collected the rubbish. It was almost like a general strike. And there was like 40-foot-high mounds of black plastic bags where the rubbish wasn't being collected. Wow, because no one was picking it up. Nobody was picking it up. And I remember going, one of our earlier gigs we played in Liverpool, went and drove up there, did a sound check, and I just picked up a local paper and was just sitting there. And the headline on the front of the Liverpool Echo or something like that, was that they were seriously considering burying people at sea in the Mersey estuary, you know, Mersey River, mm-hmm. because the gravediggers were on strike. <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was all, hey, pretty vacant, yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. And it's that, all kind of like in there somewhere. It all fits in. But once again, you're talking about what the political climate in the, in the 70s in England was, was very much... When you're talking about no future anarchy, all well, that sort okay, of thing. no future. That, I mean, God save the Queen. Right, was originally called no future. Hmm. But when it came out later on, um, it occurred to somebody at the record company that it was the Queen's jubilee, and to call it God save the Queen. None of the words were ever changed, but the first line of the song was God save. I call it God. Save. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed. Also, 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. It seems like the Pistols when you guys started and finally got this lineup of the four of you, that you took off pretty fast. We were a slow train coming overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'd done our homework, you know. It was a good year, year and a half. Okay, well. You know, from first picking up our instruments, learning to play, and, uh, and getting the following and getting a set together and getting a record deal. And then we did this TV show called The Bill Grundy Show. Then it just changed overnight. Because that was a classic. Uh, I think Bill Grundy ended up losing his job because of that did, TV yeah. show, right? Yeah. And was it a. So, so set, to set the tone. Is it a famous chat show? It was a famous chat show. It was just after. It was live. It was just after the six o'clock news during the week. Bill Grundy was quite a big will kind of journalist. He used to write for the Manchester Guardian. And he was very well respected. If say Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor came to England because they were doing Europe and they was going to give one interview they'd probably give it to Bill Grundy got it you know he was that kind of guy and um, we got to do this show kind of we was rehearsing to do the anarchy tour the phone call came through and we got this TV show we'd not long signed to EMI by then we cut anarchy and Queen was supposed to do this TV show pulled out at the last minute and the the press officer at EMI, Tom Nolan, put our name forward for it, and we got it. 
so we did it, but it just all went. Bloop. But like, you guys were swearing on it, and, and like <laughs> Steve swore badly, but he also drank a bottle of Blue Nun before he went on, <laughs> and it was a head to head with this Bill Grundy guy who didn't want to interview us, not because. He didn't like us or didn't know anything about us. But I, I found this out in more recent years that he'd had a run-in with the producer and he said, I'm not going to do it. And I think a thing had been going on for quite a while. And just before he come down the stairs from the control room to interview us, the, the producer had said to him, no, Bill, if you don't do this, you're out. And he'd come and try to take it out on us and he picked the wrong blokes and that was it. But nobody realised it was live. It was one of the first TV things we ever did. And, all hell broke loose. <laughs> and the next day, it, it was different, you know. It was the so there was national so much outrage was on the front page of all the newspapers. Because these punks had sworn on TV, basically. Yeah, but we weren't even really punks then, you know. I mean, if you see it, it's kind of quite innocuous in these times, although there is swearing and it went out at six o'clock. But, you know, we all look like quite sweet young things. <laughs> but like you know to make it in a successful rock band you the parents have to hate it which makes the kids love it even more yeah, yeah. right definitely but that wasn't going, what was going through our mind when it happened it just happened mm-hmm. there was so much kind of happenstance with the pistols before then we'd been on the front page of it's not around anymore but it was a magazine called the melody maker mm-hmm. there used to be four national music papers weekly that would sell a million copies each. Wow. It's, it's all gone now. Yeah. You know. But we've been on the front page of the Melody Maker because we've done a small gig, a fight broke out in the audience, and when you're in a band, the worst thing that happens when there's a fight, it's almost like some bird taking their top off. Nobody watches the band, they all watch the fight. So we were trying to stop it. Somebody took a picture and it looked like it was fighting with the audience. <laughs> and it was the front page of the Melody But we didn't complain about it. It was on the front page of the paper. We thought it was funny. All that stuff just leads to you guys getting more notoriety. Yeah, yeah. And Malcolm must have loved that as the manager. Yeah. Was that yeah. kind of his vibe? Well, when we did the TV show, as soon as it finished, Malcolm was, he turned white. He went, you blown it now. Da, 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 da. And I went to go into the green room to see if there was any more beer. You know, if they'd like restocked it while we was on there. And he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to get a beer. He said, no, come on. And he grabbed me. And he pulled me out and we got in the car that was taking us away. And just as well he did, because as we drove away, a police van turned up with like half a dozen coppers come with their truncheons out, you know. To do, what were they going to well, do? I don't know. They had all these complaints. And we waved. They didn't realise it was us. And we drove off into the night. <laughs> but Malcolm hadn't put us up to it. Just one of those but, things. But instead of him then trying to get press for us and call up people, they all started calling him. And he rose to the occasion. So you guys had the reputation of being these, you know, near-do-well punk kids. Yeah. yeah. Which, of course, the real kids enjoyed. Very much so. <coughs> yeah. Did you guys do a lot of a lot of gigs in, in London or in England around that time? Maybe done about 40 gigs by then around the country. Mm-hmm. Maybe not even that many. And this is before you'd even made a record. Just no, we'd sing- made Anarchy in the UK. Singles, though, right? Yeah. 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 And the album was done later. But I, I'd left by then. And, and what, what predicated you leaving the second Well, when all this press happened, I really felt that Johnny Rotten got a bit... His head was getting bigger? As lead singers do. Yeah, but particularly so. You know. uh, the, and kind of what makes him good on stage, it doesn't make him... You want to be in the back of a van... 
for. But by that time, we'd written all the songs. You know, I'd, I'd had a big hand in certainly the first three singles, and I didn't really feel that um, I was getting a backup from Steve and Paul, and they was letting John get away with being kind of worse than Elton John, you know. Mm-hmm. But you see that happening in bands yeah, time and lot, time again, know, right? Yeah, yeah. Think about how Guns N' Roses imploded with Axl Rose did the same thing. You know, because yeah. it, it, it is hard to put a band together of players that mix, but also, like you said, on the tour bus in the back of a van in an airport for the other 23 hours. That's the real secret. Yeah, that's, that's not the yeah. stage, but I mean, we've reformed since then and we've done shows and it's much easier when you're flying first yeah, yeah. class or business but when class you're young. on separate flights <laughs> you've got your own hotel room you can afford to come to an accommodation with each other you know I, but I love the line that was given when they said that uh, you had left the band because you liked the Beatles why is it so? well it was supposed to be you know we're so against the old guy but it just wasn't true mm-hmm. it, it was, I was annoyed about that because Malcolm never said that to my face and he, he sent it as a telegram to the enemy kind of behind my back after we'd already shaken hands and said oh there you go mm-hmm. so, and here you are 40 years later asking me the same thing <laughs> have you did you play calling. did you play on uh, Nevermind the Bollocks not a lot of it no but, okay. they're, but they're my songs you know did you wrote a lot of those songs yeah there's only about two songs two or three songs that they wrote Mm-hmm. After, you know, it's like Belson was a gas. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah. What did you think um, of, of Sid Vicious as a player? Um, well, he wasn't a player. Right. But what he was, he was a good character. See, but the thing was, it, all that was embroiled with it sort of becoming a cartoon strip media exercise, which again I thought was playing into Malcolm's hands. When I was in the band, it was like the early Who. And then there good was a, call. And then there was a big, well, not sounding like the Who, but it no, was like the band attitude. by the kids, for the kids, that was involved yeah. in this kind of sociological fashion kind of movement thing. And then it became a media exercise. And I didn't really want part of that. I wanted to be in a band that played, you know. I joined the band because I wanted to be a musician. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe... I was wrong, I don't know. Maybe I was a bit young. I was kind of 19 going on 20 when I left the band. Didn't see that's the old, that's the it? Two. That's how old you were? Yeah. Wow. So you guys were really young. We were young. But how long did, did the Pistols last after About you? another year after that. Yeah. You know, the thing with Sid was that he... It, Sid actually would have been a very good front man, and I did a gig with him. We did a one-off gig with Vicious White Kids, and there's a pub over the road, right? And he was going to America. And that pub over the road, I actually bought him a pint before he went to America. That was the last pint he had in England. Wow. And uh, we did a gig just to show we weren't enemies. Mm. He, he sang. He said, who should we get? I said, I don't know, why don't we get Rat Scabies on drums? And I had a band called The Rich Kids after right. the Sex Pistols. And we got Steve from The Rich Kids. So it was me and Steve from The Rich Kids. And Rat Scabies was actually in a, a side shoot band called The White Cats. And we had to have a name for it. So it's Sid Vicious, Rich Kids, and Rat, Rat Scabers from the White Cats. We called it the Vicious, vicious White, White Cats. Kids. White Cats, yeah. Right. White Kids. Yeah, vicious vicious White, White Kids. Just you know, one-off gig. But Sid was a singer for that, and he was good. You know, because I, I think he would have that, that attitude. Because as, as a singer, that's the most important thing, is getting those lyrics across and that energy. And yeah, that but vibe. what he didn't have, though, 
like John had in spades, is the gift of the gab and the, the lyricism. And to be a front man. No, the actual writing of the words, you know. Gotcha. But he looked great and he sang. Mm. Yeah. But when we was rehearsing, he did say to me, he said, Glenn, I can't believe it. I said, what? He said, well, you can play the bass all the way through a song without stopping. <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of the thing, because I think Johnny brought him in more because of his look and his attitude. And said, well, no, he, got, he brought him in because he was his mate. Oh, okay. He was his mate, and John was the last one to join the band originally, and he thought it was me, Steve, and Paul against John. It was all politics, but it wasn't. It was Steve and Paul who were a bit of a double act, like Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubbles, who I like, <laughs> and me and John. And it was like a triumvirate. There was mm -hmm, a balance mm -hmm. there, and men said, John, the balance had gone. It's, it's the old Stuart Sutcliffe story where you know, the Beatles brought him in because he was John's friend and couldn't even play, but they just liked his look. Yeah, kind of, yeah. You know, that sort of a vibe. Did um, for, What does Sex Pistols mean, by the way? Well, basically, by the time... We was getting going. Malcolm McLaren's shop, it used to be called Let It Rock, and then he changed the name to Sex because mm -hmm. it was kind of quite attention-grabbing, and he had a sign made, which I helped make. It was like pink, four or five-foot high lettering, like a, a, in pink PVC, like a Rauschenberg kind of soft sculpture. It said Sex. You know, people went past on the bus. It was like, well, on earth's that? You know, blah, blah, blah. But we were the pistols. We were the pistols from the sex shop, the sex pistols. You know, like, there's an obvious kind of pun there, but it's right, right, right. as simple as that. It's all, it's all, I think some people think that it's a, uh, like a, a, a euphemism for a cock. Which it, it could be as well, you know, <laughs> yeah. but that hasn't, isn't how it come about. Again, there was a bit of happenstance. With the, happenstance there, yeah, we yeah. We were the pistols from the sex shop, sex pistols. Yeah. When you when you left the Pistols, was it hard to kind of see their when you're sitting back and starting a new band and they're kind of growing and becoming more of a bigger band? Yes and no. Um, while I was falling out with the Sex Pistols in early '77, I got friendly with one of the guys at EMI, a guy called Mike Thorne, who actually became a very big record producer. He produced Soft Cell, you know, Tainted Love. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He's done loads of stuff. You know, he's maybe more on the electronic side. But he was an R guy, and he called me up early '77 and said, "Look, can I take you out for a curry?" I said, "Yeah, all right." Um, I said, "Who's paying?" He said, "EMI." Are. I said, "Oh, why?" And he said, "Well, we at EMI know that you and the other guys have a bit of a problem, and we at EMI hope you sort it out. But also, we at EMI." know that if you can't sort it out, we'd be more than interested than anything... That we see you as the main tunesmith in the band. We'd be more than interested in anything that you come up with. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And I was getting all this shit from Rotten. And, <laughs> you know, it's quite a good expression in life, more trouble than it's worth. <laughs> right. And I'd started just thinking, do I really need this? And, and, and looking out for other musicians. And that was that, really. You know, and I didn't rush to sign to EMI, but I thought if they think that, other record companies would. And there was a big sort of, what would you call it, you know, a signing fest from from all, you know, Richard Branson and Chrysalis. Sure, right, right. Chasons. But we ended up signing with EMI because I started getting a lot of shit, you know, all this Beatles thing. And I thought, well, f*** them, I will sign to EMI then. Did, did, you, did, so, you, did you get a lot of shit for that from, like, the, the hardcore oh, from, punk fans sort of thing? From the press. Okay, gotcha. Stuff, but know. why? The Beatles? Because it's an easy story. Gotcha. It's an easy story. Clickbait, right? You know. 
so that was that. And yeah, and, and I, in, in fact, it's kind of sort of timely that you're asking me, but we're actually going to do a one-off Richkids thing on 19th of May at Shepherd's Bush Empire. Mm-hmm. And I got Midjure in the band. Right. Heard of Midjure, fantastic singer, and Rusty Egan, this other guy, Steve New, who's no longer with us. We're going to have to get somebody to cover for him. But um, it was a different thing. I wanted to move on from punk. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a second division punk band. I'd already done that. Yeah. And I wanted to move on from it. But maybe we was a little bit of ahead of our our time. And I got a lot of flack. You know, we'd be playing and, oh, it's nothing like punk. Well, we're not supposed to be punk. Mm-hmm. You get kind of stuck in that uh, yeah. people want to put you in a category yeah. of the yeah. punk guy. You know, and we was listening to the Rich Kids. We we was one of the first people really hip to those albums that Bowie made with Biggie. You know, mm-hmm. like Low and, and Heroes and Lust for Life and The Idiot. We'd have that in the... Right. You know, we didn't sound like that, but some of the production values, I think, apart from Bowie, he was probably one of the first bands to ever use a harmonizer on the, <laughs> the snare because we'd heard him do it. And then we was working with Mick Ronson. He produced it. Right, uh, of course, yeah. You know. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The Pistols and the Ramones kicked off the punk scene, and then 78, 79, 80 got even bigger, especially in England. We're talking about you know, the jam and over in Canada with DRI and all that sort of thing. Do you feel that uh, that was completely due to the influence of the Pistols and what they started? I think we had a big hand in it. I don't mm-hmm. think it was only down to us. I think what happened with the Pistols over here, when we started coming through, Everybody was kind of a bit fed up with what was going on and they was looking for something, but they didn't know what they wanted until it was put in front of them. It's a bit like shopping for trousers, you know. Oh, I need some trousers. Don't like them. Oh, they're good. You know, but you don't go and try and get them, you know. Right. It's kind of a bit like that. And I think lots of people were doing the same thing. So it was like we stuck our head above the parapet and started waving our little flag and people rallied around it. And I think that happened all around you know in America and stuff it was just well, any, timely any genre that starts whether it be grunge or heavy metal or, or, or whatever it may be electronica one band hits and then the record companies want to sign a bunch of other bands that sound like yeah and there's band. also all the also runs you know and then the record companies wonder why they don't didn't sell as many right. records because kids can tell what's put together and they can tell what's the real deal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know what was it like when you mentioned how you guys reunited in 2002 or maybe something? Well, 96. Was 96 the was the first one? Yeah. How did that, uh, how did that come about? Uh, basically, I'd gone to Los Angeles. I'd been there for a long, long time. And I was working on a project. A friend of mine said, I found this fantastic singer. And he was a great guy, but he wasn't a singer. <laughs> um, he was, in fact, he was a skateboard champion. Um, Steve Olsen. Oh, yeah. Right? Steve, lovely champ. bloke, right? right. But he weren't well, the guy he was looking for. And I was knocking around in L.A., that with a friend of mine, he went, oh, well, what are you going to do now? This hasn't quite worked out. And um, I said, I wouldn't mind looking up Steve Jones. 
and I hadn't spoken to Steve in like kind of 17 years. So you basically had no relationship with the guys ever no, since you left? No, I with Steve Paul lives in London. Steve moved to America. And um, the next day, my friend Calvin, he was actually Mickey Most, the record producer's son. He said, hey, i got Steve's number, call him up. And I went, oh, maybe tomorrow. And every day, this went on for about a week. And then I finally called him and Steve went, oh, I heard you was in town, let's meet up. And so I drove and met him. And as soon as I got there, he said, let's go and see John. So we went to see John. And then when we was all together, Steve said, let's call up Paul in England. And Paul was out. So we went out for some lunch. And then he called up while we was out. And he just set a train in motion. That was in 95. Mm-hmm. And somebody put some feelers out. Next to me, had this big, massive tour. Because I, I'm sure that it was massive because the legend of the Sex Pistols, like, I, I think a lot of people don't realize that the Sex Pistols only had one album, one official. Well, I think a lot of people realize that, yeah. But, but I also think a lot of fans don't, like you hear the name Sex Pistols, so legendary, but don't realize how fast the band came and went. Um, I don't know, yeah, maybe. So that's what I mean, so, so to see the band on tour again. Yeah, it was a chance, yeah. Oh but, my gosh. But, 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 you know, it was never going to be this, the, exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't going to be caught up with all that furore, although John did a good job at stirring, somewhat, stirring them up a bit. I mean, we did a press conference at the 100 Club where we used to play, which is in London. And yeah. You know, there's like all the world's press there. It was a big deal story. And somebody said, you know, you, you know, why are you doing this? And John said, we've come for your money. <laughs> he, was, he was great. He was great. Yeah. And then we did some shows. But the one of the best shows I've ever done, we played at this place called Finsbury Park in London. It's a park. And it was like our own show, you know, like a mini festival. But it wasn't a festival. It was our gig with loads of other bands on. And 36,000 people turned up. You know, and we hadn't played for 20 years. And we hadn't put a record out for it. And it's kind of like proved we was right. And to me, it was important to do it. So out of everybody in the world, they could have asked as a bass player, they asked me. But mm-hmm. then if they didn't, then it wouldn't be the original band. But I, th- I think I didn't. I think I set the train in motion just by calling up Steve, you know. <laughs> well, and you were the original player, yeah, so, yeah. you know. But, you, know. So, you know, to have all those people turn up after all that time, it just proves that you was kind of right somehow. Mm-hmm. Not me, but the band was right, you know. When you're talking in 96, were you aware of the influence that the Pistols had? Like, was there people showing up like other famous musicians? Oh, yeah, when I got there to the show, I, I like to, if you're doing a festival gig, I like to get there a couple of hours before and check a couple of other people out mm-hmm. and get in the mood. The I wanted to see Iggy. Iggy was on just before us. And I got there and I walked into the dressing room, which were like porter cabins, do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I walked in there. And I was like the first one from the band in there. It was a big spread and all this. And there was Liam Gallagher nicking our drink. I went, oi. And they, they were big by then. Yeah, they were huge oasis. Was going, huge. Oh, you f*** off. <laughs> <laughs> and he went, oh, sorry. <laughs> but there's, like you said, I mean, I know Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses, no, a huge Pistols fan, you know. I'm sure for, for a lot of guys to get a chance to see the Sex Pistols was a dream come true. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. What size venues were you playing for the majority they were mainly festivals and okay. kind of amphitheatres and all around the world. We did like the best part of 100 gigs all around the world. 
Was it different, you know, like you mentioned, you, you were so young in 77, and here you are 20 years later. Well, I was so young then, comparatively. I mean, I was, <laughs> John said we're fat, 40, and back, but me and Paul were only 39, and I was annoyed about that. <laughs> well, I do remember it was my 40th birthday, and we did a gig in San Francisco, and the record company promised me a cake, and I got a cake, but they didn't tell me it was for a meet and greet. <laughs> <laughs> You got to save that for the uh, VIPs. <laughs> How about the whole Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing? That was um, that was tremendous. It kind of was, and it wasn't. I mean, how did you feel about it? I wanted to go, mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to go because I actually had a couple of other gigs lined up in the states, and it, you know, it was going to fly <laughs> me there, over, yeah. and it was all going to join together, and then John took a unilateral decision to turn it down without talking to us and we was all a bit annoyed about that oh that was just his decision because he, he basically he refused he sent a letter that says the it's a piss stain and the rock and roll hall of fame well, you know, and, in some ways he was right well sure um, there is some but he could have asked us first so he just sent that in and didn't tell you guys yeah <laughs> so did you just see it on tv or something well through the management and yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go yeah like big deal but we're in Kind of all right to go, but that is kind of the the vibe of what of what a lot of people would expect from the Sex Pistols. Yeah, you know. But I've heard Steve Miller was moaning about them recently. Yeah, that's I didn't, right. I hadn't seen it. I just saw that he was moaning about them. Yeah, well, I I, I go every year. The last three years I've went, and it is. I mean, it, it is very corporate, and I can see. Yeah, I I'm, I think one of the reasons John got annoyed because he likes to bring all his mates everywhere, and they wouldn't charge him a fortune for a table you know that, when you're getting inducted you know it's, that's the truth you got to pay like 25 grand for a table yeah. so that you can bring everybody yeah. so but you know it's very memorable at least if nothing else yeah. <laughs> yeah. you talked about playing with uh with clem burke from blondie yeah um great guy as well do you guys still play together quite a bit no at the moment we did a project called the international swingers um with a guy called gary twin an english guy who lives in l.a a couple of years ago it's just coming out now I mean all the things are, are different you know you don't get people our age don't get massive deals and right you know and it's coming out through pledge and blah, blah, blah. I did that as a project so I'm not doing that anymore but I'm still mates with Clem I've got a whole retinue of American drummers that I put up I'm big mates with Slim Jim Phantom and and they all have my spare room when they come to London. Not at the same time. <laughs> but you've been playing non-stop for I like playing. You 30, know, phone rings. Years. And, I mean, this year I've been to Italy several times. I've been to Australia. I played. I was playing in Dallas. I just got back from Estonia. I'm off to France next week playing. All in different bands? It, I, I actually do quite a lot of solo shows. Really? Just, just by myself. Um, what, what, what do you do? I'm, Acoustic well, guitar? Or? Yeah, I mean, all the songs that I've ever written... I wrote an acoustic guitar, hmm. you know, Pretty Vacant, God Save the Queen, and I put out three or four albums on my own back since then, and I can do, like, a selection of songs with no set list at the drop of a hat. Hmm. I've toured the States, smallish kind of gigs. I did a tour with Sylvain Sylvain, a mm -hmm. doubleheader Double a couple dolls. of years back. We did all the East Coast and Canada and... And I enjoyed doing that. I did a show at the Edinburgh Festival about a year ago. Do you still have a relationship with the other Pistols? Um, well, when we do the Rich Kids gig on 19th of May, it's a double header with the Professionals, which was Paul's band, mm -hmm. Paul and Steve's band after the Rich Kids. Steve's not doing it because you can't get him out of LA. Paul's yeah. got, and I don't really know that it's any different 
because I know the sort of professionals with Steve and them, and they got this other guy who's good, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I see Paul quite a lot. Do you think you'll ever do any a uh, pistol gig again? Don't know. We never say never with right. pistols, but but you know everybody's going oh it's forty years of punk and you're not touring, but it's also forty years of punk for the pistols next year as well. Who knows? But there's loads of things to do, and I was talking about Slim Jim. Yeah, Slim Jim Phantom. Phantom. Um, we've got a band. In fact, I went to Australia with him, and we recorded an album about a year ago, which I'm kind of on the cusp of getting out now. It was me, him, El Slick on it. Mainly my songs. Then the bass player, Jim Lowe. Earl Slick's a great player, too. He's a fantastic Bowie's guy. Yeah. Yeah. So... I saw Slim Jim. He played. Uh, he was in a band with Lemmy called Headcat. Yeah, I saw them. They, yeah, they had some yeah. good stuff. Did, did you ever see Motorhead in the seventies? I mean, that was kind of a, another punkish, you know, a little bit more heavy, but still had that vibe. Um, yeah, I saw Motorhead. Mm-hmm. I saw, I think, their first gig at the Marquee. Oh, okay. And I remember Lemmy's bass amp packed up, and a three-piece band. It was so loud, and the bass drum was so loud that you couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> It was like, well, I only knew it packed up because you could see him trying to fix it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pinned against the wall. But I like Lemmy. It's just sad that he died. Yeah. He was one of the people who were around back then when they would have, I remember going down the Portobello Road, which is like our kind of Melrose or yeah. somewhere, and be having a drink at lunchtime, and there'd be me and Rat Scabies and Mick Jones and Brian James who was in The Damned and maybe Tony James who was in Generation X or trying to get them together and Lemmy <laughs> you know and we'd all go to the cafe together Have a good and that's before anybody had done anything you know. right right so yeah but there's loads of stuff to do and I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in getting this album out and, and playing mm-hmm. you know, if the pistols phone rings or the phone rings but well, it's, it's loads a, of other things to do it's this, yeah it's a great legacy to have but, but you've been playing you know, and I've been fortunate since. because through, people know me as a punk thing but I've got to play with people just after you know I did a little bit of stuff with Primal Scream and Mates of Mine and you know I got to play with Mick Ronson and Ian Hunter and wow how was that that was great you know, did I, you play in a band with them or jam with I them I did or? a lot of work on um, uh that album Never Alone with a Schizophrenic <laughs> which and the band was it was funny because Ian Hunter was producing Generation X at the time at Wessex Studios where we recorded Anarchy and I turned up and the Generation X guys going oh what are you doing here I said well when you go home at 6 o'clock I'm the bass player for Ronson Ian Hunter and Clyde Bunker was playing drums originally it was supposed to be Simon Kirk but he couldn't make it and they were like you know, because they were all big fans of those. Yeah, yeah. But then the album, he don't. He only had half the songs at the time, and I, me and my big mouth, I said, you know, Ian, you're daft. You're sitting here trying to write songs in a studio that's like forty pound an hour, which was a lot of money in 1977, and uh, or 78. And um, he said, oh, I've earned the right to do that. I'm like, okay. So we're sitting there, sort of twiddling our thumbs a little bit. And a couple of days later, he pulled the session and went home and wrote another six songs. Some more songs, yeah. But recorded it in the States with the E Street Band, so oh. <laughs> I should have shut up. <laughs> Last question, what's your favourite uh, Pistol song? Pretty Vacant. <laughs> That's my baby. That's your tune, right? Yeah. yeah. Glenn, it's awesome talking to you, man. All right, mate.
All right, mate. Thanks to Glenn Matlock. He still tours, as he mentioned. He's got a couple solo dates uh, this week in England, actually. He's playing Thursday night at the Phoenix Artist Club in London. And again, next Wednesday, the 30th, at the Deaf Institute in Manchester. Follow him on Facebook at Glenn Metlock Official. Go check out his gigs. He's a very, he's, a, he's actually quite a distinguished English gentleman, continue, considering he was in one of the greatest punk rock bands of all time. Thanks to Glenn, and thanks to you guys for all supporting the Talk is Jericho sponsors. I could not do this without them or you. That includes the original sponsor, Amazon. You can find my Amazon links at podcastone.com. Click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page. Then hit the Talk is Jericho button. I'm telling you right now, I got Amazon links for the USA, the UK, Canada, A. Every time you use the Talk is Jericho Amazon links, Amazon kicks back a small percentage to the show to help us cover production costs. You can buy just about anything you can think of on Amazon, and using the Amazon links won't cost you anything extra. No hidden fees or extra houses. Just go to podcastone.com. Click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page. Then hit the Talk is Jericho button. You can also find all my great sponsors there as well. DDPyoga.com slash Jericho. Get 15% off the DDP Yoga program plus three months full access to the DDP Yoga Now app. Actually, not even 50%. You're getting 25% because this week is Black Friday all weekend long. 25% off. Just go to DDPyoga.com slash Jericho. Uh, don't forget DraftKings. Use my promo code Y2J to play for free with no deposit this weekend. MeUndies. Go to MeUndies.com slash Jericho. Get 20% off your first battle choose and free shipping in the U.S. and Canada and Jack Threads. Skip the lines on Black Friday. Go to jackthreads.com and save up to 80%. Okay, thank you so much. And thanks for checking out the Jericho Network at Podcast One. Uh, start your week off on Sundays with the hilarious, irrelevant Team Tiger Awesome show. Give these guys a shot. They will have you rolling in the aisles about everything pop culture. And then, of course, Killing the Town with Storm and Cyrus. Brand new show on the Jericho Network. The most intelligent, ridiculous, funny discussion about pro wrestling with Lance Storm and uh, Cyrus Don Callis. And then, of course, there's our flagship show, Keep It 100 with Conan every Thursday. They just did their highest rating ever with the Eddie Guerrero tribute show. If you haven't heard it, uh, go check it out. It's very heartwarming, very funny, and very uh, very uh, riveting as well. Uh, hit the subscribe button for the whole Jericho Network family at iTunes. Leave everybody five stars, ratings, reviews. Throw out them five stars, everybody. Keep yourself entertained all week long. And don't forget, speaking of being entertained, March 15th, 2017, it's the, the biggest, biggest podcast ever when Mick Foley joins Talk is Jericho. The countdown rolls on. Only 108 days and counting. I think we started this about 200 days out, so we are rolling here. Keep listening for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next and coming up this Friday by popular demand. You've been waiting for it. Talk is Jericho presents Talk and Shop live in Shanghai. That's right, the return of Talk and Shop. Carl Anderson, Luke Gallows, and very special Talk and Shop guests are rotating forth. Braun Strowman joins me for another hilarious episode, and you never know who else might turn up to join the party. See you Friday for the madness and insanity that is Talk and Shop right here on Talk is Jericho. You are not going to want to miss it. It's a great way to spend your post-Thanksgiving day. You're going to all be in a turkey coma, and you can laugh your ass off at Luke Gallows being a total idiot. Talk and Shop uh, live in Shanghai. Coming up on Friday. We'll see you then. Stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs, and a big damn yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com.